Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Emily Harding of the Center for Strategic and International Studies on her analysis of the National Defense Science and Technology Strategy and the seven critical technologies the United States needs to win the next war. But first, joining us now is my good friend, Jason Salata. He is a retired United States Navy captain who was uh, the former spokesman of both the U.S. Special Operations Command as well as the Navy's special warfare community that includes the United States uh, Navy SEALs. He is now with uh, the crack team at the ProVision Advisors uh, PR firm that is running uh, the media center for Soft Week in sunny Tampa, Jason, always a pleasure, and thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's always a pleasure for me, Vago. It's uh, it's awesome to get a chance to not only talk with you, but also talk about uh, all the things that are going on down here in Tampa. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell, Leonardo DRS, and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Jason, uh, real pleasure again. Uh, know how busy uh, you guys uh, have been. We heard from Stu Braden uh, early in the week about what we should expect and the themes uh, of the show. Obviously, he is the president and CEO of the Global Soft uh, Foundation that puts this show on uh, every year. Talk to us about the big picture takeaways, right? I mean, we heard from uh, the U.S. Special Operations uh, Commander on what you know his vision is. What were some of the key messages that leadership uh, de- delivered at the end of the day? There should be some kudos to both SOCOM and the Global Soft Foundation's uh, work here on this reimagined event. I mean, it's already been a resounding success. We're on day two, um, and it's 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 moving forward as uh, as predicted. And I think there even than seeing it's even bigger and better than they thought it was going to be. But yeah, General Fenton, uh, General Brian Fenton kicked off yesterday um, with his with his opening remarks. And of course, there were things that we expected to hear from him. But the one thing that I really took away was he keyed in on this underpinning of partnership across all the domains that SOCOM is, is operating in. It's this partnership piece that he kept hitting. And I mean, Right off, he starts talking about its partnerships in Ukraine and the Philippines, which um, to me jumped out as pretty uh, as pretty direct and specific. But as we we heard from Stu, um, SOF is not new to the to the great power competition. And the reason that it was successful in decades, decades um, was these underpinning partnerships. And he looked specifically to the fact expanded on it, uh, the partnership with Ukraine SOF goes all the way back to 1994 when operators in Europe um, started uh, their work with them and they've maintained that commitment to Ukraine today, right? Um, The other is, you know, he addressed the Philippines and our work with our allies there again for decades and that all is on the rise. So I thought those two pieces were his big takeaways. And indeed, right, the United States uh, striking new basing agreements in the Philippines coming back in a way that we haven't been uh, since uh, the Cold War, really, right? Mountain Pinatubo, June 1990, and uh, and then followed the U.S. uh, pullout, uh, unfortunately, from the country. But now, given the China threat, um, the the country is moving uh, closer to uh, the United States under uh, President Bong Bong Marcos. I want to get your your sense on 
sort of the the big technology that was on display at the show because you know if you go back to its foundations and I remember attending uh you know decades ago not to date myself it was kind of a gun show a sight show cool flashlights uh you know uh kind of uh you know uh, gear uh whereas now it's actually transformed to become quite a technology show and quite a cutting edge technology show uh right I mean you guys have un, uh, AI unmanned at at a level cyber included Walk us through some of the most interesting technology that jumped out at you over the last couple of days. Yeah, absolutely, Vago. This is, as you would imagine, from the recent AUKUS headlines, I mean, this year's Soft Week has so many more exhibitors and attendees from the UK and Australia. And I mean, I've attended these, again, like you, for many, many years here in Tampa, and those pavilions have expanded greatly. And a lot of those partnerships are focused in that technology area. A UK company called James Fisher Defense is, is partnering with this company in the U.S. called Blue Tide Marine on a swimmer delivery vehicle called Shadow Seal. This is like a four-man electric delivery system that operates like on the surface as well as fully submerged. Obvious, um, you know, uh, obvious utility in a in the Pacific, but the fact that these partnerships in this these technology areas, as well as um, the, the kind of standard uh, soft field delivery vehicles, wheeled vehicles, aviation, uh, unmanned systems, that technology integration is happening and it's happening across ponds, right? It's happening across the world. Um, some other like really cool tech integration stuff that I saw in, in my just, you know, walking around that jumped out to me is this edge computing stuff. And we saw something yesterday, um, this buzzword, of course, we keep hearing it as zero trust uh, and zero trust technology integration is being done in these, in these um, partnerships where like Red Hat, Mainsail, Western Digital, Tapir, all these um, technology companies are coming together to, to work on these zero trust system that basically takes zero trust into the silicon and then allows some forward operating soft team to be able, like, let's say they lose their connectivity to a satellite or to a higher headquarters. They can pop on, you know, an, any network, 5G, dirty internet, whatever it is, and be able to, you know, communicate and move their data, um, their collection and all that stuff in all these alternative feeds. But then that's all underpinned by the zero trust trust right so that was super interesting to people and you see uh, at these technology places where you know sometimes when you see a data demo a, a demo on a on a piece of data or a computer demo it doesn't always draw a lot of people's attention but what i found really interesting about that particular one there's op all kinds of operators um really interested in this type of technology because i mean that's something that they have to be able to do uh, what are some other neat uh, things uh, you saw there? Because actually, uh, even, and I, I was selling it a little short, even if uh, some of the stuff looks like personal equipment, the special operations community does uh, tend to covet technology in it that whether it's a load bearing pack or, or a weapon, right, is looking for technology to give them the, the edge connectivity and, and communications has been a big piece of that. As you mentioned, JFD uh, is a great company that does specialize in uh, just sort of really unique undersea uh, vehicle and, and breathing technology. What were some of the interesting other uh, things that jumped out at you as you were walking around? Because you guys have thousands of exhibitors there. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. To, it's really hard to pin it down. But I'll tell you one that I thought was super cool. And it's again, it's AI. You mentioned it at the outset. I mean, like there's a company right now that is it's called ClearSpeed. And what, what they do is they're looking to employ AI enabled voice analytics 
um, as, a, as a means to assess human risk, right? It, this is technology and it's the first technology that is designed to accurately pinpoint the risk of fraud in speech, right? So this technology was initially marketed um, to like the claims departments of major insurance companies. Um, but it obviously, you know, so yes, no questions. And through this technology, they can tell if someone's being truthful or not when they answer these questions. And in this case, it has direct applications to enable soft to mitigate risks in support of like foreign vetting, right? Um, a, a security right. screening situation or counterintelligence or selection. I mean, like, you know, I, talking to somebody and being able to ask them a yes or no question and have a figure of merit of whether they're um telling the truth or not is a pretty interesting uh, concept. That actually would have a, a whole uh, series of applications, especially if you can push it to the edge, right? If, if you're not uh, connecting back to the mothership like we had to do with biometric analyses during uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, where it was like you had to take the picture, you had to upload it. I mean, it would take hours. Whereas if you have actually a capability that gives you kind of a, hey, th this, this guy or gal is telling you the truth or, right. or not would be a very, very powerful a uh, very, very powerful tool. Vago, uh, I, I want to use it with uh, my sons, you know, like, are you at Mike's house? Yes or no? You know, and come up. Uh, <laughs> with, uh, that, that should be an iPhone app, actually. You can just use that uh, and, and spot the mommy dot, uh, which is, uh, which is <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't, you don't have to do that. Um, so every uh, show has, uh, has, has good, has bad, has challenges. So uh, walk us through sort of, uh, you know, the, the week, uh, the week so far, um, what's, what have been sort of the, the, the high points and what are on the to-do list to improve it for next year? As with pre previous versions of this conference, I mean, um, many of the exhibitors that come here, they know that a product that gets procured by SOCOM or by special operators has a really good chance of getting procured by big army or big Navy, right? So I've always noticed that the niche of this place uh, in its many, many uh, years prior to, and then where Global Soft Foundation is taking it uh, today in the kind of the vision that the SOCOM commander has put out, you're seeing this much more focused on not just the exhibitors, but the attendees. And, and that, that transition from the tech perspective is, is really interesting because what you saw here today and right now we're actually just offside this PEO row. So the program executive offices of SOCOM have a um, dedicated row where they're getting pitches, where they're giving pitches. So you're, you're seeing not just from an exhibitor's perspective, but from an operator and attendee's perspective, this back and forth and this like really, really immersive way to, to kind of develop products. And that's where, I mean, like you said earlier, you hand a special operations guy a tool designed for one thing, that innovator that's in their DNA they will change it. They will, they will amend it. They will couple it with something else. They will plug it into something that's going to make it better. And that innovation has to be where you focus just as much on the um, attendees as you do the exhibitors. So I think that that's where this conference is going to go in the future. It's going to be way more of this kind of level playing field where you can share not just the technology, but ideas and uh, exchanges that would really be um, it would really drive not only the technology that SOF is going to bring on board, but expand that into the, the broader services. That's my biggest uh, view on where I see this place going.
Jason, uh, a pleasure having you on the program. Got to do it more often. Uh, thanks so very much. Uh, enjoy the show and look forward to being there next year. Sorry I couldn't be there with you guys this year. Wish you the very best. Thanks very much, man. All the best. And joining us now is Emily Harding, the Deputy Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She started her career as a CIA analyst and joined CSIS from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, where she was the Deputy Director. She is also the co-author with her colleague Harshina Guru of the recent report, Seven Critical Technologies for Winning the Next War. Emily, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, the Pentagon just unveiled its National Defense Science and Technology Strategy. I know you've had some interactions with senior folks in the department uh, about it. It, it. It's actually a remarkably good document and commend people to read uh, the 11 uh, pages, uh, which is short, sweet, and to the point. Hits a lot of buttons, says America uh, still has extraordinary advantages, especially because of its allies and, and uh, partners, but that scientific and technological playing fields are being leveled uh, world uh, worldwide. And it's going to take a lot of focused effort to maintain that edge, right? It's a three-pronged strategy. Make sure you're making the right kinds of investments, uh, foster an innovative ecosystem, and quickly harness uh, the new technologies that are developed, and also ensure a strong foundation for physical uh, and digital uh, security on the R&D uh, side. Pretty broad. 14 technologies, biotech, hypersonics, advanced materials, space, um, integrated sensing, and cyber. Walk us through, from your standpoint, what are the, the kind of good elements of this strategy? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, one major advantage is that it's it's short, and it's sweet and to the point, and it's quite well written. Um, with some of these big overarching government strategies, it's very tempting to turn them into a Christmas tree or a kitchen sink where people put everything and anything on top of it. And this, I think, has really avoided that trap and does a, a quite nice job of laying out a very clear vision. Um, I like that it starts off talking about technology fueling the military advantage. This is something particular about the way the U.S. and the West tends to fight, but it's very much that focus on technology as a part of the military advantage, not the entirety of the military advantage. Too often people think about tech as being, oh, this is going to be the thing that changes everything. This is going to be the silver bullet. And it's not that. Uh, it is a part of the strategy. I thought it was really important that they talked about how U.S. global leadership in these fields is important. It's not enough for us to just sort of chug along in China's wake. Uh, it's important that we lead, that we're the ones that are driving the innovation, that are driving the global conversations about how these technologies should be used. Uh, also, it's critically important that they made two points. First of all, we're going to divest from legacy systems. That word is a, a hot button issue a lot of times on the Hill because there are certain people who really want certain systems to continue, even if they're not as useful anymore. There are also large parts of the department where their whole job is to basically maintain legacy systems. And I mean, for good reason, right? Like transitioning off of a legacy system and onto a new system can be difficult, but that doesn't mean that we should maintain them. We need to make that leap. Uh, so I thought that was an important point. Also an important point, we're gonna leave behind risk averse processes. This is music to my ears and we can talk about why later on. There's a lot of discussion about the joint mission and I think that is fraught for anybody who has spent some time in Washington. Um, we all understand that jointness is the goal, but then when you get to the point where the Army is buying one thing and the Air Force is buying another thing and the Navy is buying another thing, uh, it can be really challenging to create that jointness from the ground up. 
Uh, and then I also thought that, you know, sort of along those same lines, they talk about the importance of collaborating with allies. And if we're going to fight jointly with allies, we need to also be building systems from the ground up. Um, lots of talk about investing in the workforce. This is, I think, one of those points that everyone agrees on, but nobody has figured out quite how to create that workforce of the future. And that's going to be super important. And then finally, I wanted to point out this graphic that they did uh, in the strategy on the valleys of death, which I think is, is quite well done. People use the phrase valley of death really casually in Washington without really thinking through what it means. And I think this is actually a good way to conceptualize it. So yeah, um, overall, I, I think it's a really strong product. Um, I, uh, I I too sort of liked it where you can visualize uh, visualize it, and also the, um, the 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 defense innovation ecosystem map is also kind of an interesting one uh, where you can sort of see where uh, sort of the hot uh, the the hot spots um, are. Oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, you'll note that not many of them are in Maine right now, and I suspect that a lot more will soon be in Maine. <laughs> uh, that's true, right? A lot of people bought real estate up there, but as Mainers uh, frequently tell me, yeah, once they spend a winter or two up here, they're really not going to want to live up here uh, year <laughs> long. I'm not being critical at all. Our son went to college in Maine, and we've oh. also spent a lot of time in that beautiful state. Uh, so I'm, I'm not judging it, but we've also experienced Maine winters that can be sporty. Um so let me uh, take you because there are a lot of parallels between what was included in your report uh, and and what is in uh, this document. But really quickly, you know, our computers and our bookcases are groaning uh, with all manner of strategies, uh, Emily, and some of them are beautifully written. But the thing is that they they have been moving the needle. It's not fair to say right. And the 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 mass of this work has sort of inched the ball forward to the point where it is starting to roll, right? But what are the things that have to happen to take this from, you know, sort of an intent document and turn it into something that's generating concrete outputs? Because at the end of the day, people can't even, you know, they don't, they don't want to use the L word as you joke, right? They don't want to use the legacy word and, and they don't want to necessarily do the people stuff. And they don't want to make the tough choices when it comes to jointness on, on what it is uh, a service should be doing and what it is it that they shouldn't be doing. What what are the things that have to happen to ensure success um, and bring risk into this either, right? We're so risk averse, we're actually inviting an enormous amount of risk in the process of doing this. What are the things that have to happen to actually turn this from an intent document to actually deliverables? Yeah, I mean, it's the hard question. If it was easy to do, we would have done it a decade ago. I mean, it's really all about the incentive structures. And right now, the way that the system is set up, it is to be kind of efficient at procuring giant things made of metal, not so much procuring things that have a very tight turnaround time on innovation and iteration. Um, what we think, I think we really need to do is take a very hard look at the way we do contracts. Uh, there are many, many, many layers of approval, for example, to get something through security. By the time a product, especially some of these high-tech products get through all the security checks, they are out of date. Um, I would love a zero-based review of that process and see which checks are actually ne actually necessary and which ones are just, you know, legacy of these previous systems. Also, there's a lot that happens with contracting that happens for a very good reason. Um, there are lots of structures in place to try and prevent corruption, to try to have everything be as fair as possible to the people applying for the contract. But then some of those things have unintended consequences. Like, for example, contracting officers can be personally liable if something goes wrong with their contract. 
I mean, that's why professional liability insurance was created, but still that's a huge disincentive for a contracting officer to be willing to take a little bit of risk in a contract on a really important technology. Right. Uh, contracting officers have been you know, trained over years to be following the letter of the law, but those laws are slow and outdated. So what can we do to update the regulations, to update the contracting processes so these things actually turn around faster? It's a lot of nitty gritty work where somebody needs to be both an expert and very brave in the way they go about it. And we just, we gotta buckle in and get it done. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more because, um, right, if, if, if Harding Industries comes up with a better mousetrap, I've used this analogy on the show, it, you can't just bring it to the department and sell it to them. We, the department studies it, then competes it, and then, you know, Meridian Manufacturing underbids you, wins it, doesn't really know what they're doing. There are cost overruns, and uh, alas, uh, it, it ends up being problematic as opposed to maybe giving somebody a f- first mover advantage or saying, hey, the commercial product if you just make it 10% better or put it in a better case, maybe we can we can use it instead of reinventing uh, the, the, the cannonball. Um, That's absolutely right. That's something that we actually talk about in the seven critical technologies paper. You know, the 80% solution most of the time is good enough. And rather than have this, you know, pages and pages long set of requirements for the technology that you need, the perfect bespoke technology that you need, is the 80% solution actually good enough for the government's purpose? Or do you need to pay all that extra and spend all that extra time for the 100% solution? The government, I would love to see, look at things as, yes, I need the super bespoke solution, or no, I can handle 80% of what I need, and that's absolutely fine. I I think Ukraine is demonstrating to everybody that even a 20% better solution is better than no solution at all, right? And and embracing it quickly, uh, there's a value to doing that. I want to go to your document, uh, which is another one that I recommend that the uh, audience uh, read. And I'm going to flip this around a little bit um, and ask you not necessarily yet about the technologies, but first for you to tell us what the seven critical are, you have three sprint technologies and three follower, and I want you to explain that in a minute. But first, you have to make assumptions about what that next war looks like if the technologies you're picking are war winners. So take this in any way you want. You, you can start us off with the, techno- the, the seven uh, and then go into the war or explain what it is that we think or you guys think the next war looks like and then take us to the technologies that are needed to win it. Right. So we really did try with this project not to have it be just another list of shiny objects. There are lots of lists of shiny objects out there, but we wanted to try to be methodical and logical going from what we anticipate war in the future to look like to the capabilities that it's going to require to win those wars, all the way down to the technologies that we need to attain those capabilities, because those are slightly different things. The capability is what you get out of it. The technology is like the pieces and the tools you have to get to that capability. We use war sort of broadly here. We were really looking at the spectrum of conflict. And as such, we thought about two different versions of this future conflict. One is the slow smolder. And the other one is a hot blast, which actually somebody mentioned to me later sounds like two excellent names for cocktails. And my next party, I think I'm going to have to have that. (laughs) Or a band or a band. But anyway, or a band or a band. Um, But in the, the slow smolder version, what you're looking at is something slightly more robust than what we have going on right now around the world, where you have countries that are sort of maneuvering for advantage that are trying to work below the threshold of armed conflict to set themselves up to win without a fight. 
Uh, we look at what China is doing in Taiwan as sort of like a light version of this right now. They could definitely step up those activities and try to do things like undermine confidence in the Taiwan government um, or try to you know, work through the population to manipulate perceptions. There are lots of things that you could do below the, the threshold of armed conflict. We see China doing this in other parts of the world too. Russia, of course, is a pro at this uh, and has tried to do it uh, globally. You've got things like the Wagner Group operating around Africa. Um, you've got them doing, you know, undermining democratic elections like they attempted to do here. So this isn't really a new concept. It's just that some of this uh, tactics has proven very useful. So that's the smolder. And then in the hot blast, what we're looking at is what are the lessons that great powers have learned from the Russia-Ukraine conflict? What did Russia do well? What did Russia do poorly? What did they try to do and pretty much fail at? So for example, I would have to think that any great power who was looking at you know, attempting to take over some other territory, for example, would be thinking about uh, leadership decapitation strike in a really concerted way. They'd be looking at a much more aggressive cyber campaign. Russia sort of attempted one in Ukraine and it was marginally successful, um, but they probably could have done more and I think have learned that lesson. You're also looking for taking tons of territory very quickly and making it a fait accompli before the rest of the world can show up to help. So that's, that's the hot blast. And in the hot blast scenario, what the US or its allies would need in order to confront that world power would be excellent logistics, secure communications, uh, and then a high end ability to bring together allies and partners from around the world very quickly. In the smolder scenario, it's much more intelligence heavy, trying to figure out the signal through lots and lots of noise because the adversary is intentionally trying to not show you what they're doing. So you have to sort of pick out the bits and pieces and say, wait a minute, this looks like it might be more than just an exercise, for example. So that's how we thought about the future of warfare. Um, and I need to put the caveat on here as a good intelligence analyst that nobody actually knows the answer to this question and that whenever anybody attempts to predict the future of warfare, they're generally wrong. Uh, so we went a little bit broad and then thought about the capabilities and the technologies that would serve the United States well in pretty much any scenario. Um, so the technologies that we ended up narrowing it down to, and I should also say here that we had did a lot of interviews, a lot of workshops, and we could have had a list of 50 technologies, uh, but we really tried to winnow it down to a solid seven. It's one of those things where if everything's a priority, nothing is, and so we wanted to create actual priorities. Right. So the By seven. The way, by the way, very well done on that, because if everything's important, nothing is important, right? Whereas if yeah. you say, here are the core things that are cross-cutting, and, and you guys also note, none of these should be seen in isolation, and they all cross-connect, right? And which is what makes each of the ones you chose even more important. But anyway, go ahead for the three sprinters and the three followers. Right. So the three sprint technologies, we define these as sprint because they need urgent focus, um, and they need government to be pushing forward the boundaries and pushing the envelope on what the technologies can accomplish. And that's because we don't think that the private sector on its own is going to get even to the 80% solution that I was talking about earlier, and certainly not to the 100%. So those three are secure, redundant communications networks, uh, quantum computing, and bioengineering. And the bioengineering one I want to highlight specifically defensive bioengineering. Uh, we have to assume that our adversaries are pushing forward and probably with fewer ethics than, than we would have in the West. And so we need to be ready to defend against potential bioengineering attacks. 
So those are the three sprints. And then the four follows. These are ones where we think the, the private sector industry is doing phenomenally, going great guns, building things rapidly. The government doesn't need to push the boundaries. The government just needs to follow along and then pick and choose where they can support and maybe tweak around the edges to meet the government's mission. Those are miniaturized high-performance batteries. Uh, there's a really stunning statistic in the paper about just how much loss of time and life existed in uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, just moving fuel around the battlefield. And if you think about that spread across, for example, the Pacific Ocean, the loss of life, the time, the logistics chain there gets nigh on impossible. So we're asking soldiers to go into battle with these highly electronic versions of the, the warfare we've done in the past. Everything from you know, drones that are trying to oversee the battlefield to you know, undersea capabilities, and if you are stranded on an island in the Pacific with no fuel, you are dead in the water, quite literally. So miniaturized batteries, uh, space operations, sensing in particular, and then on orbit repair and refueling capabilities. Um, robotics, we think that the human machine teaming on the battlefield is gonna be really important and advanced robotics are gonna be able to do more and more of the really dangerous missions that humans can't do. And then finally, AIML, and we kind of debated this one because it has arrived in a big way. So calling it an emerging technology is a little disingenuous, but we really do think that incorporating AIML capabilities into the future of war fighting is going to be a game changer. So in the end, we ended up including it. Um, good, good call uh, in uh, doing that. You know, suddenly the public has sort of discovered AI. Uh, because of chat GPT and um, a couple of other products. But AI has been around us actually for some time. And that has raised concerns about, um, there are elements of AI that are, that are moving very quickly that are potentially problematic because we might be more disciplined about what, how to use it than our adversaries will be. Uh, it's not a good reason to do something because your adversary will, but you have to think about it. From your standpoint, how is it we need to be thinking about AI you know, the DOD last uh, last month put together uh, a the latest, um, you know, autonomy and weaponry guidance. We're making sure that the human remains in the loop all the time. How, how is it we need to be thinking about AI, given how fast it's moving, and that commercial AI is actually moving at quantum speed, no pun intended, mm -hmm. compared with where, you know, how the Defense Department is approaching and moving this, right? I mean, the guys who are moving the needle the fastest for the department or commercial vendors that are coming in there and moving it for the department? How do we need to be thinking about AI and weaponry? Well, the very first thing we need is realistic expectations about what it can do. Uh, one of the projects that we're hoping to get funded in the near future is a set of um, short videos that are aimed at people who are high ranking and in decision-making capabilities about what AI is and what it isn't. So trying to identify the areas where AI is actually a very capable partner and areas where eh, we're not there yet and we really shouldn't ask too much out of it or we're going to get you know, really bad results back. So, for example, if you ask ChatGPT to put together a meal plan for you, it can do that really well. If you ask ChatGPT to write a biography of a person it fails mightily. Uh, I asked it to write a biography of me. Um, first of all, it thought I worked for the Canadian Intelligence Service, which no. Uh, and then the other thing that it thought was that I had worked at RAND and gotten a PhD from MIT, which, you know, I'm flattered, but absolutely not. Um, MIT called, they want their PhD back. 
so you really have to, to let it do things where it shines and not ask it to do things that require a lot of processing and inferring as opposed to just summarizing and pointing out. So like, for example, um, we've talked about the Pacific. The Pacific is a very big place with a lot of blue water. No human can spend, you know, years and years and years looking at imagery coming out of the Pacific Ocean. However, you can use an AI system to do some tipping and cueing. You can tell an AI system, look for anything that looks vaguely like this. And then rather than the person going through multi-millions of images, they can go through maybe a couple hundred images and say, yes, this is important. No, this is not important. You further put that AI capability on a satellite that has advanced, advanced sensing capabilities. And that satellite can basically scan through the images it's collected select the most important ones and downlink only those most important ones urgently, which saves a ton of time and a ton of bandwidth and also makes the, the warfighter get the information that they need a heck of a lot faster. So like that kind of capability, I think, is, is near term. Um, some of the bigger reasoning capabilities, it's a while off. What, what about weaponry? Um, we already have very smart weapons. Um, and loitering munitions. I mean, there is a human in the loop in terms of sending, uh, sending it on its way, but it goes out there and hunts for targets. And if doesn't find the first one or can't hit the first one, we'll hit the second one, right? That's a considerable degree of intelligence. Um, how do we need to think about autonomy in weapons, especially how our adversaries, right? Russia and China may have fundamentally different approach to what it is they open fire on than we do. They might actually automate a lot of functions. And we have yeah, some evidence that they actually are automating some functions that we would not. Yeah, I think that is a critical point. There's going to be, I think, a place where, you know, we in the U.S. and some of our allies are going to look very carefully at the trade-off between capabilities and speed on the one hand and ethical, responsible use of these systems on the other I have confidence that we will come down on the side of ethical, responsible use because we, generally speaking, do. Um, but I think that we're going to have to accept the fact that some of our adversaries may have just set it and forget it in some ways with some of these systems and said, you know, go forth and, and find the tanks and then hunt them down. Um, I do hope that our default is human in the loop and that our discussions globally about responsible use of these kinds of technologies always focus on human in the loop. Um, we're just nowhere close to a dependable enough system that you could remove that, that human judgment, that human check. Emily, thanks so very much for joining us. And also thanks very much for doing uh, that uh, series. It's what we're trying to do here uh, as well and wish you luck on it uh, and would love to welcome you back on the program. Uh, as we discuss uh, these and many more technological issues. Thanks so much and keep up the great work. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much for having me.